Welcome to the fourth episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. My name is Stefan and I'm part of the technical support team of Active Motif. The topic of this episode is aging and epigenetics. Our special guest for this episode is Peter Tessatz from the Max Planck Institute for the Biology of Aging. And I'm happy to talk to Peter on the phone now. Thank you, Peter, for joining me today. Hi, Stefan. How are you? I'm great. <laughs> and thank you very much for joining. Um, please let me quickly introduce you to our audience real quick. Um, you studied biochemistry at the University of Wittenherdecke, where you received your diploma in the year 2003. You then moved to the lab of Bernd Buchau at the CMBH in Heidelberg, where you received your PhD in 2008. After joining Tony Kutsarides at the Gordon Institute at the University of Cambridge for your postdoc, you came back to Germany and are now group leader at the MPI for the biology of aging in Cologne. To me, this looks like a pretty straightforward career, but did you plan all of this from the beginning or was it like yeah, coming to, together in the end? Well, I mean, obviously, when you say it, you know, like this, it, it, it sounds like a very linear path, but um, I guess we're all aware that there's usually, a, you know, a certain aspect of luck involved. And, um, and uh, what, I, what I also should say is that, you know, I always changed a little bit uh, from, you know, from PhD to postdoc and now from postdoc to my group leader. So, um, yeah, I, it sounds linear, but in the end, you know, there were quite a few hurdles to overcome. And, and I have to say also, I'm very, I'm very happy that I was very well supported by all of my supervisors so far. So that, um, that was really helpful. So I guess in the end, it all comes down to, to luck and opportunities that you have and can then take and yeah, use. Well, I mean, luck, yes. But I mean, I would also maybe say that, you know, if you find an opportunity, you know, you just have to grab it when it comes along and um you know you sometimes also help have to help you know your luck a bit along on on the way so yeah and i mean i, I think it as i said before so it really depends heavily you know on your supervisors i mean I can, i can give you an example so really you know close to the end of my phd we um we actually found out that we were expecting our first child and um so you know then we were really struggling what to do and both of you know bernd as my phd supervisor and antonio they were really Yeah, they were really cool about this. So I could stay a bit longer in Bern's lab um, and then join Tony a bit later. And in the end, you know, this again turned out really well because I could finish um, another story that was probably would have never been published uh, if I if I didn't stay. So, yeah, I mean, there's always a mix of opportunity and luck, I would say. And being at, this, at the right place at the right time, right? <laughs> a bit, yeah. So why did you choose uh, the lab of Tony Kutsaridis for your postdoc? Was there a specific reason for that? I mean, again, it was a, a mix of, of various different reasons. So as I mentioned before, so in, in Burns lab, I was working on, on protein quality control and we were taking actually this path down, down into aging research at the, at the end of my PhD. Um, and I was working heavily on, on uh, yeast prions and, you know, you might, you might want to call them also some kind of an epigenetic component. Um, and, um, you know, I, I stumbled then upon you know, a couple of you know very landmark papers in the field and I became very interested in epigenetics and chromatin. And what I knew is that I wanted I, I somehow felt that I wanted to switch fields and I was looking for something that you know was very basic um, that you can address you know in, in really good model model organisms. And um, and the other thing that I was looking for was a lab that had a really good track record of, of 
putting people into academic positions because that's what I wanted. And I think Tony's been incredibly successful. I think over 60-70% of his postdocs went into academic positions afterwards. So, you know, um, and I went, interviewed, and it just felt right. So I joined Tony. That sounds really great. And now um, you're a group leader at the, at the MPI and your group focuses on chromatin and aging. As aging is a central part of life, how would you describe aging in general? Yeah, I mean, I think I think we, we you can see this in you know everyday life. You know what what you see is that aging is a decline. I would say probably in, in general physiological function, and and this happens on the one hand on you know on a more cellular and molecular level, you know loss of protein quality control, mitochondrial integrity, you know the DNA damage response goes down. But then if you know you go a bit high on tissue and organismal level. You know, you have a loss of regenerative capacity and, and probably one keyword would be stem cell exhaustion. We might want to talk about this a bit uh, uh, later. We also talk about epigenetics. So I think, you know, in the end, really, it's, it's I would say it's a decline in, in function on, on many different levels. And that's, I think, one of the fascinating things because A, it's very complex and B, it's a really pressing, you know, problem. So you were talking about single cells and, and, and the different levels of, of where aging takes part. In 61, Hayflick and Moore had described a phenomenon which is called cellular senescence, which uh, describes the aging of individual cells. So what, what is the difference of the cellular senescence and organismal aging? Yeah, I would say that, I mean, on the one hand, they are different. So senescence and aging, you know, they're because I guess aging has this really strong organismal component to it, where senescence really is down to one, you know, the, the fate of one cell. But I think it's becoming really clear that senescence is really a major contributing factor to aging. So you see accumulation of senescent cells in tissues. And I think, you know, last year there were at least two stories that um, that showed if you specifically ablate senescent cells that, you know, you can prolong lifespan in model organisms. So it's, um, you know, it's it's a bit difficult because, you know, it's, that sounds like a really cool thing to do. You just deplete senescent cells and you have a longer health and lifespan, but Then again, on the other hand, one should not forget that senescence is a really important pathway, you know, for instance, to control that cells don't divide and proliferate that, that have a lot of damage inside. So you would say just killing all senescent cells in a body does not necessarily mean that aging is stopped. Well, I mean, it's really clearly that, uh, or the studies clearly showed that if you, if you clear senescent cells that you live longer and you live longer in a healthier way. But that's obviously true for, for um, you know, for, for model organisms. But I think, you, you know, you have to be a bit careful because A, you know, um, as I said, you, you need senescence specifically to control, let's say, to prevent cancer formation, to really make sure that cells stop dividing if they have accumulated too much damage. But also, you know, if you consider that at least, I think, You know, there, there are model organisms that, like salamander, for instance, that can regenerate um, lost tissues. So at least in these organisms, um, you know, senescence like apoptosis um, 
might be important for for development and and, and regeneration because they they have this very specific uh, secretory phenotype that they secrete and and thereby attract you know immune cells and um, and and other ones and to cause local inflammation. I think the problem in aging is rather that you have too much and you cannot clear them. A or on the second hand, on the other hand, that you also have an issue with uh, regenerating the tissue, right? Yeah. So what are now factors that influence how and how fast aging in an individual advances? Or what, what can you say about this? Yeah, I mean, what we know is that there is a fairly large, let's say, genetic component, so that which is somewhere in the range between 25 and 30%. So this is really down to your genetics. Um, so what you, what you get from your parents, you mean uh, exactly. inherited? So, um, yeah, yeah. So I think, you know, if, you, if your parents live very long, I guess your chances are quite good that you probably also live longer than average, let's put it this way. And, I mean, you can also see that, you know, in, in specific, you know, um, regions in the world that people in general tend to live longer than in others, which might have a genetic component there. But, I mean, obviously also others like diet, stress, um, exercise, um, So, and I, actually, I would like to come back to the diet because I think that is that's the one component that's fairly clear that this influences um, lifespan or health span quite dramatically. Um, so, really, I guess I mean the famous example is uh, caloric restriction. So it means if you just reduce your calorie intake, that this has a very profound effect on the way you age, and you know um, if. And also that slows down aging by quite a bit. So wh why is this? Is this uh, because you you end up having less damage to your cells because you process less, yeah, calories or less less food or what's what's the the, the principle behind this? Well, I mean, there's a lot of signaling that's involved. Um, I mean, insulin signaling that you have. Um, yes, you have less energy. Um, um, that leads to you know your your. Uh, less ross so there, there are a couple of i mean it, it seems to influence a variety of 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 different things in your um in your body when when you when you go down to caloric restriction and, uh, i mean it's amazing that this works you know over the whole almost the whole evolutionary tree i mean you can do this in yeast you can do this in mice um, obviously it's very difficult to do in humans simply i don't think we have really the you know physiological or psychological rather strength to endure, you know, um, a low caloric intake over a long time, um, especially, you know, if you're, and you probably have to do this when you're young. So, you know, it's, it's a bit difficult to see why you now you have to avoid all the nice things in life. You know, yeah, just that's true. <laughs> so that, that, but I think what is very good is that, you know, this is kind of a paradigm that, that we can use to study what pathways, you know, we could interfere with in theory to, you know, to be able to, um, to fight aging or to you know, fight aging sounds a bit, but you know maybe to prolong um, what we would like to do health span right to live longer in a healthy way. Okay, I mean, and what can you say about the the impact of DNA damage and also the length of the telomeres in in, in respect to aging? Does this also play a role in this in this uh, pathway? Well, actually, telomeres is a good point. So, I, uh, caloric restriction, as I said, it, it, it impacts on on 
quite many different pathways. I mean, DNA damage is definitely... Uh, I mean, the problem is, you know, when we talk about aging, it's such a complex phenomenon that, you know, every little bit we look at has has an impact on, on you know, the at least on, on lifespan and model organisms. And, you know, I mean, it's, I think it's definitely clear if you can reduce DNA damage that um, this will have a, a very positive effect on, on your outcome. And um, since, you know, uh, and, and because caloric restriction definitely interferes with oxidative stress, so there is obviously also most likely an effect on, on you know, the, the amount of DNA damage that, that is inflicting it. And this might be one of the things that, you know, you're, you're looking at when you, when you talk about um, caloric restriction. But it's not restricted to this. I, I think, you know, uh, so I, I think the, the, one of the, the profound things, you know, if you just consider one of the first examples in, in C. elegans that, that Cynthia Kenyon found, it's really, you know, this insulin um, signaling pathway in, in, in C. elegans that, um, you know, that's if you just interfere with insulin signaling, you know, they just simply live longer. And, and that tells you already that, you know, the signaling that happens upon, you know, um, digestion that that this um, that this already plays a role, and it, it plays a role on many different levels. Moving more into your field, or more in the field of epigenetics, what can you say about the basic principles of chromatin alterations during aging? How does epigenetics come into play in this in aging? Yeah, yeah, that's a very interesting thing, and I think we are um, so. Uh, I mean, that's one of the reasons why you know. In the end, I decided uh, to to move back into this field. Um, so I would say, really, we're still, I would say, in the in, in the infancy of this whole whole field, and I think it's partly due to technical reasons. I mean, for a long, I mean, only in the last couple of years, we are now really able to to look at you know chromatin on a on a global scale, and also now, you know, since the field is moving into lower input samples, and I think this is one of the problems that we had so far, that a lot of the initial observations that we have came from genetics, which is I mean, obviously very, very cool, but it's sometimes a bit difficult to dissect molecular mechanisms. Also, if, if you consider, you know, that a lot of the early chip seeks in, in aging um, organisms was done in whole tissues, where we look at, uh, at, you know, a mix of different cells. So given all these problems, I think it's very clear that there are um, changes. They are sometimes very subtle, and they are sometimes a bit puzzling because different cells will have different um, epigenetic changes. But I think there are some that, that seem to be very consistent also on an evolutionary basis. So this is, you know, loss of histones, loss of heterochromatin, um, and then shifts of, or, you know, drifts of DNA methylation. So we're, so you were talking about the methods uh that yeah you're somehow limited on the methods but but what kind of methods methods are you currently using to study those changes in chromatin i mean we look um we do i mean almost you know the classical toolbox of of you know chromatin research we do mna seq we do um chip seq rna seq i mean i think now the you know stuff like attack seq all these things that now also allows us to go down in input where you can also start studying really pure cell populations for instance you know stem cells um, I think this will become and is becoming and, and will become even more important uh, in the future 
So the thing you are looking at is mostly open chromatin. So maybe comparing, yeah, what kind of genes are activated in, in aging, right? Yeah, so I mean, this is obviously the ultimate thing. So why, you know, what genes are or what impact does the, this change in chromatin structure have on, on gene expression? So, um, and obviously one of the things is that you see and, and, and that kind of makes sense that often, you know, the effects that are ultimately transmitted are on stress response genes, whether they are up or down. So, you know, whether you make a cell fitter to cope with stress or less fit to cope with stress. So this seems to be kind of also a, a general tendency. But then you see, I mean, obviously other things. So for instance, loss of histones, that means, you know, you have more accessible chromatin. Again, might lead to more DNA damage, to more aberrant transcription. And then obviously DNA damage and transcription are, are interconnected as well. I mean, you have, you know, this concept of epimutations and so on. All of this plays a role. So I think one thing that, um, that kind of uh, was one of the major, at least for me, major things in the, in the last couple of years when we talk about epigenetic and aging is obviously um, the epigenetic clock, um, which um, I, I, and, um, you know, this is that you can take actually a very few, so it's three, a bit more than 350 CPG sites in the genome, and that lets you make a, a prediction of, you know, the actual light or the actual age of a tissue or a, a, a cell or even um, an organism. And I think that is is fascinating that you can, you know, with just the information or at so many, at so few sites can give fairly precise information on, you know, So those CPGs are, sorry, so those CPGs are located at specific regions in the genome, right? Yeah, and that's actually the, 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 the interesting bit here. We don't know why these 350 can do it. So there is no biology, so apparent biology attached to these 350 sites. Obviously, you can do this with many more, but Steve Horworth, who came up with this algorithm, basically he could break it down to these 350 sites. So this is just correlation, right? It's total correlation, but the correlation is fantastic. I mean, it's 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 a really super tight correlation. And um, I think in the beginning he had some issues because no one believed him because, you know, the correlation is so great. But um, now, I mean, it's been shown in many tissues, uh, many different samples. Now um, other groups have published the same or used the same algorithm to look at, you know, the, the age of mice and model organisms, even, you know, Let's say coming back to caloric restriction again, you know how how that impacts then um, you know the actual um, epigenetic clock, and this is very consistent with what we know. So it's a, it's a, it seems to be a very fantastic biomarker for you know the age of a given sample. So you can say, well, it's five to twelve now for you, and you will probably die in two years, or, or how how can yeah, can I imagine that? yeah, somehow like this. So I think you know one has to be a bit careful, but I mean obviously yeah, it's a, it's a, it's um, I mean at least. You know, I don't know where they where this will spin in the future, but I think you know from a biology point of view, it's I find this incredible that you know this is you know that that you know can do this with such in the end limited information. So maybe I missed this, but in which organism was this done, and can this be translated into human, or has this been done? Ah, in human? Sorry, no, actually, the the original data set is from human even. Oh, so yeah. this is from you know, um, and this is this was done from like. Um, prediction from like on a thousand uh, um, so this is basically a training sample that was used where you know age and 
um, CPG methylation content was known. So this was a training set. And then you know, once the training set was done and the algorithm was there, you know, it's possible to do this in any sample that you want. So having said this, so this was all for human, um, but now for mouse, um, so that had to be a bit adjusted, especially the training set. But in the end, it's, it's a very similar outcome also in mice. So this is then done by artificial intelligence. So a neural network somehow organizes or... Somehow, yeah. yeah, exactly. So how does the architecture and the modifications of chromatin change in the in the aging process? So we we talked about this that you're looking for like activated genes. So is this then change in transcription and there may be also chromatin remodeling involved, right? Yeah, I mean as always everything is involved. Um and as always, you know, the correlations are sometimes better and sometimes worse, you know, when you when you go from chromatin to, to transcription. Um but I mean Again, what's fairly clear is that, um, you know, that you change the pattern of activating and repressing marks. So, I mean, I meant, so heterochromatin, that's very clear, so you seem to lose it. Um, and with all the consequences, so you get um, upregulation of uh, transposons with their consequences, um, But if we go to more, you know, euchromatic or facultative heterochromatic marks, if we look at H3K4 trimethylation, that seems to, you know, increase the levels. Um, and they also seem to spread. So I, it's, and it's not very clear whether, you know, this is fuzzy, but it's what's quite interesting that these broad K4 marks, they are implicated in cell identity. So that, that makes it kind of interesting to see whether, you know, this is one of the reasons. Um, K27 trimethylation, the patterns change as well. And I guess, but it's not, you know, it's not always very consistent from tissue to tissue, organism to organism. So therefore, um, I think it's, it's, it's not so clear. I think the, the one that is clearest is probably acetylation. Um, when, when you look at, um, you know, um, histone acetylation, I think it's also a bit easier to understand because, you know, this directly, if you want, um, correlates with, with chromatin structure. And the other nice thing that, and this is probably one of the things that we know best, is how this connects to metabolism, which I think is one of the very interesting connections in, the, in aging research, you know, how aging metabolism and epigenetics is actually um, connected. And again, caloric restriction and nutrition plays a big role there. So where do when we talk about all this, uh, where do you want to move or what do you want to find out or what do you want to investigate in the next five years then or what would be the next step for you in, in your lab? So what my lab is really interested in, so when I mean, we still do quite a bit of, you know, really classic transcriptional studies, but what we're really uh, moving to a lot is what I just said. So basically how metabolism and epigenetics are connected and um I think what is really interesting if you, uh, I think there are so many links, A, you know, nutrition and, you know, directly links obviously to metabolism, but then, and we talked about it in the beginning, um, if you look at stem cell and stem cell exhaustion, stem cell fate is directly coupled to metabolism. A lot of stem cells, you know, they, they do anaerobic glycolysis or when they're quiescent, they have a very different metabolism than when they are activated and um, differentiating or proliferating. And so this is something, these are the kind of questions that we would like to tackle. So how does a, a given 
um, environment or niche of a cell um, and and their metabolism, how does that uh, impact on the epigenetic landscape? And, and we are we are looking at this in the framework of you know of, of aging um, because I think it's a very um, interesting because you know it's it's a very easy way to it's not easy because I mean model system is a bit complicated but um, it's it's a good way to perturb the system in a way. And um, yeah, is now the goal more that you want to prolong? living for humans or do you think there is a, a limit a definite limit where you can say well there is 125 years and then it's gone or what what are you are looking for are you or what do you think is possible to to do i mean the 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 age limit i think that's a huge discussion in the field at the moment um, i guess you're aware there was um, there was a study last year in nature um claiming that, you know, 120, 125 years is probably, you know, that's it. Um, unfortunately, you know, the statistics are a bit thin and it's a bit difficult to say. Um, I, I would say it's impossible to say where the actual, I, there, there will be a limit, but where the limit is, I think it's very difficult to say. And this is actually also not really what we want to do. And I think it's not also what the field wants to do. I think what the field, and I'm now talking about the aging field per se, um, what the aging field wants to do is not increase lifespan indefinitely, but we really, what we aim for is to increase health span, you know, that you can maybe live, that, that and, and health span is kind of defined as the time where you live without major chronic illnesses. And, And I think it makes sense if you look at, you know, it, it, the way that aging is actually the major risk factor for almost every disease that, you know, modern civilizations are, you know, fighting with. So if we, if we manage to prolong, you know, this, this phase in life that we can stay healthy, I think this would um, have benefits way beyond, you know, the, the field of aging, but would touch, yeah, I mean, society by quite a bit. Yes, what I wanted to say is that uh, everything that you talked about, so the organismal, no, the epigenetic clock and also the paper that you had just mentioned, I will just put it into the show notes so everybody can um, click on the link and then follow the publications for further reading. I have now reached the end of my questions. So is there anything we missed or you still want to talk about? Then feel free to, to do it now. Yeah, so one thing I think um, that, I mean, we touched now upon, you know, how we how we want to, increase you know the health span but um and obviously there are, there are many approaches and and i think this is one of the interesting fields or things about the aging field that it's a very broad field you know people address everything from proteostasis over my by, by mitochondrial biology dna damage and, and obviously also epigenetics and um, i think everywhere along the line people try and find you know some interventions to, you know, to improve um, or, you know, to improve this health span aspect. And I think epigenetics might be able to you know, contribute quite a bit because we know from other fields and now we are going probably to cancer biology that, you know, epigenetic drugs um, seem to be very promising. So there are quite already a few on the market. Um, and um, I think, you know, once we understand a bit more how, the epigenetic aspect is uh, controlling aging maybe we find a way to you know to interfere with this as well 
And I should say, you know, there, there, there's, I mean, one of the easiest examples, if you just look, you know, and this is true in, in yeast, but also in, in higher organisms, that if you overexpress simply H3, H4, that prolongs lifespan. So, you know, just the simple, the simple fact that you lose histones and by resupplying them, you can increase life. I guess tells quite a bit that you know this is maybe an, a system where where we are able that we are able to drug maybe at some point in the future. So what is the link then from losing the histones to aging? I mean, is it is it DNA compaction or is it DNA damage? Is it uh, mutations or what do you think is is then the reason that? that <laughs> Or is probably, it everything? Probably, I think it's it's it. Yeah, I think it's probably all of the the ones that you mentioned. I mean, you can. See, I mean, it's very straightforward to think. You know, if you have less nucleosomes, and I think this is also something that one one should say at the end as well is that you know all these changes that we see in terms of histone modifications that we talked about earlier, one has also to be a bit careful how to analyze these because, you know, if you lose histones, you might in general also, you know, lose these marks. So it's always very important to, you know, to control these experiments properly. But, um, you know, if you if you lose histones, you lose nucleosomes, um, you know, DNA is probably more accessible for, you know, DNA damaging agents, it's more accessible for aberrant transcription and, you know, transposition as well. So unfortunately, it's probably all of the above and it's not just a simple answer. It's never so easy. And I guess it's this was a good good final statement from you. So thank you very much for taking part in this episode. And I wish you all the best for your experiments and for the next years. Thank you very much. <laughs> Bye. This was the fourth episode of the Epigenetics podcast from Active Motif. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. We are happy to receive your feedback on Twitter at Active Motif or at Epigenetics Pod, Facebook or LinkedIn. If you have any further questions, you can also reach me at Eurotech at ActiveMotif.com. You can download the podcast also via iTunes. If you wish to stay current on epigenetics research, please subscribe to our newsletter on the Active Motif website on www.activemotif.com. Thanks for listening and stay tuned. <laughs>